For June 27th, 2011, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 156, Carsploitation. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. Hey, when we were reviewed on the, uh, the pod thoughts column on MaximumFun.org, uh, the reviewer, which is probably the highest profile media exposure we've ever received, by the way, and I love MaximumFun.org, and I love Jesse Thorne and his uh, whole network of podcasts, um, which are awesome. But uh, the reviewer on pod thoughts said uh, that our tagline was terrible. I say F you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, Which is a piece right. of criticism we probably don't friends. deserve. <laughs> and uh, F you and thanks for listening. But um, <laughs> but no, is our is our tagline terrible? I don't know. That's not the question of the week. R- write in, uh, listeners, and let us know if our tagline is terrible or leave a comment and suggest a better tagline because I think we could do better now that we're kind of showing up in the iTunes uh, you know, featured list sometimes. I think we could do better in terms of conversions. Uh, and our, um, our listing in the, in iTunes says the overthinking it podcast, overthinking it is the podcast that subjects the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably doesn't deserve. Now, my, my argument is that that gets us exactly our demographic. If, if that sentence appeals to you, uh, you will like this show. Um, and you will not I got a suggestion. Yeah. Overthinking a podcast, the only audio podcast to feature full frontal nudity. <laughs> I, think gets, I think that gets at our demo pretty well. I, I'm what pretty, is spoiler alert? I'm pretty sure that every one of our audio podcasts thus far has featured full frontal nudity um, from at, at least, least one of us. We're who? Yeah. One of who, you ask? Well, I'm Matthew Rather, your host, and here is the panel to overthink all manner of things. But... Uh, to start, to start off the question of the week, in honor of um, uh, gay marriage legislation being passed in New York, now, now that the five dudes on this podcast can marry a dude in New York, what dude in New York would you like to marry? It's not, it, the dude must be already in New York. It can't be a dude that you take to New York and then marry <laughs> there. <laughs> I want to marry Frodo. <laughs> We're going to have a place on the Upper East Side. We're going to go eat at Bessie's, get some burgers on Tuesdays. That's okay. The Shire is clearly in Westchester. So, <laughs> yeah. so um, hey, those are the dulcet tones of the first person in the alphabet, Mr. Peter Fenzel. Hey, how's it going? I'm pretty good. How are you? Doing great. Really, really jazzed at all this panoply of new options that we have. I mean, it's like double the number of people we could marry right. or talk about marrying. Um, I don't know. I figure I want somebody kind of entrepreneurial, but who's also kind of active. So, like, somebody who, like, maybe, like, runs a business or started a business, but who also, like, sort of gets out there and gets his hands dirty in the world. Just someone's really active in the community. Uh, maybe somebody a, l- a little bit of a different worldview. I mean, that's why I would pick Oroku Saki, also known as the Shredder, who <laughs> operates a gang of ninjas who steal electronic equipment. <laughs> And kidnap news reporters around New York City, <laughs> greater New York area. I really feel like um, like he's a bad boy, but I can change him. You know, I can. Uh, I feel like you know, he's got that fire. He's got that charm. He's sort of like a, a Team Jacob kind of guy in certain ways. But he's also kind of a Team Edward guy in certain ways. I feel like Team Shredder is a team we can all get behind uh, uh, from on a daily basis. I really, and also he's just you know he's got the wonderful little garb. 
Um, he's got the, you know, he's, he's sending signals and, uh, and I think that's good. He shows he's available. Um, yeah. And you got, you can't beat a guy who has an army of indestructible robots. You just can't. <laughs> Unless, Unless you're, you're a turtle. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Can I? I was um, going to say one of the. Nin- I was going to say the real question this should be is which Ninja Turtle would you marry? Because that's really the <laughs> thing. that's really the only characters. <laughs> I'm like, oh, but they're teenagers, and that's inappropriate. That's that's uh, that's not fit for children. Uh, and I guess I could have said, oh, well, if they get older. But then you know, I figured why not just go with a man rather than with I a mean, child. Pete, I was really worried you were going to go Pete, with like a Splinter Lemon Party, but I'm, I'm glad you were. <laughs> 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 Pete, are you assuming that Bebop and, Ro- Bebop and Rocksteady are, like, off the market? Oh, I thought they came from Jersey. I didn't know they oh. were, you know, and speaking of unmarriable in any form whatsoever. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, I guess does it count if they live really far under New York? I, I, I thought the Shredder's a New Yorker, right? I mean, he's, he's around New York City a lot, especially in the movies and in the comic books. We don't have to worry too much about the Technodrome being, like, officially, like, in, uh, in Delaware or something like that because of where the, the borders fall when you cut into the Earth's crust. But um, a, lot, a lot of the old zoning laws, though, actually, like, try and accommodate for that. Mm, like the, oh, really? In, in the city of Cambridge, like, the area owned by Harvard is not just the surface area, but that area down to the center of the Earth below it. Really? Yeah, which is why, you know, Boston natives, which is why uh, the T makes a right angle turn around Harvard Square rather than just going underneath it. They actually can't, like not without Harvard's permission. That's really So does the Harvard yeah. like lay claim to like millions of pounds of molten iron? Or yeah. I guess it's solid. Yeah, yeah and Har- Harvard, Harvard owns roughly 0.005% of the Earth's magnetic pole. <laughs> You also have yeah. of bowl men in the form of graduate TAs that are slaving away below the surface mining. Uh, <laughs> Coincidence <laughs> or not? Hi ho! We all have the Thousand men of Harvard. Hey, right, Pete, no, come on. I want to. Yep. I want to. I want to name drop a little bit. Actually, okay. I met Saki um, Hamato Yoshi. <laughs> anyway, <go ahead. laughs> when I when I was um. Uh, when I was working in theater, when I was employed steadily in the production side of professional theater, I met yep. uh, an actor named James Saito. And okay. James Saito- oh, my God. You met James Saito? Yes. <laughs> James Saito, also oh, known the as Saitos? The Shredder from yeah. the 1990 <laughs> live-action uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. And yeah, he, yeah, that's right. Um, he also played the butler in... Uh, in the Thomas Crown Affair, the remake with Pierce Brosnan, you know the Asian butler who is, uh, you know, always cleaning up when, uh, when you know Pierce uh, nails um, Renee, what's her name, on the uh, marble staircase. Yeah, that's James Saito. Is that Asian <laughs> yeah, butler? Yeah. So um, he uh, did this uh, this very serious play. Uh, you know, it was a new play, and it was kind of hailed at the time. It was pretty good. It was hailed at the time as like the Asian death of a salesman. It was about you know the Asian experience as immigrants in America. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, he was a, a serious actor and he was there because he was a serious actor, but, um, he was willing to sign headshots as James, the shredder Saito. <laughs> he did. He did one that was, uh, I hate pesky turtles all best james the shredder and i saw it so uh the shredder is a is the actor the shredder is a very awesome guy and uh was very cool indeed when i met him awesome okay that's the end of my name dropping there mark lee is next in the alphabet fun fact 
uh, turtle soup is a Japanese delicacy. <laughs> mm. Dining on it a lot, I guess. Oh. Actually, no. I, what, what on what authority can I say that? I'm not Japanese. I'm Korean. But you already knew that because you're an avid listener of the Overthinking It podcast. Okay, uh, New Yorker dude that I would marry. He was only a brief resident of New York. In fact, probably not long enough to consider him a resident. But he spent uh, the short time that he spent in New York was memorable. I'm talking, of course, about Snake Plissken from New York. <laughs> nice. He's wild nice. married Snake Plissken. All right. So let, gay marriage is passed in New York, and it's you know either uh, a momentous occasion for uh, you know expanding civil rights in New York or the beginning of the apocalypse. It can be both as well, right? So you know this is a great moment that you know our gay and lesbian brothers and sisters have been allowed the right to marry, like the rest, like you know like the, the heteronormative society uh, has been uh, allowed to do for a long time. So yes, that's an advancement in civil rights. However, it's also going to bring the apocalypse because uh, what's going to you know gay you know Single gay people have made New York a great place to live, right? Um, just trust me on that, okay? So when they get married, then like you know, all their like gentrifying powers will be negated, and so New York is getting crappy again. And once New York is then a steaming apocalyptic hellhole because gay people have mar- gotten married and sort of negated their you know gentrifying powers, then I'm gonna have to escape from it. And who best to help me escape from New York is like this kid. That's I mean, he wrote the freaking book on escaping from New York. So, because single they, people, me. single people care how they dress and how their apartment looks and what their neighborhood is like, you know. And married people just want a lawn, you know. <laughs> <laughs> just want a place. They, they're going to move to Long Island. Is what's going to happen, Jersey? Right. They're going to no. Then yeah. Greenwich Village is going to be. Um, you know, the, the post-apocalyptic hellhole that Snake Plissken needs to bust through. Allowing, allowing homosexuals to marry saps their gentrifying power. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I actually heard a counterpoint to that. I heard a counterpoint to that on Twitter by Mo Rocca, who, uh, who quote, said, uh, marriage is the bombed-out, desolate neighborhood that gays are going to move into and revitalize before everyone else wants to move back in. <laughs> Wow. Touche. Touche, Morocco. Marriage, marriage, just is the new, marriage is the new Hell's Kitchen. <laughs> exactly. Marriage <laughs> is Chelsea. Oh, man. Actually, not Chelsea, because that was a while ago. It was South End up here in Boston, but anywho. Yeah. Was that finalized by the gays or by the, um, the bulldozers over the homeless? No, it was revitalized by the bulldozers that uh, filled it with earth when it was previously water. But um, I'm not sure about all of the other stuff. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought it was. I thought it was a uh, the gay neighborhood was a, a lot of what revitalized it over the course of the years. Although it was a gay neighborhood before it was revitalized too, I believe. Um, I mean, not overwhelmingly so. It sort of hit a critical mass at some point. But it's sort of like you know, you know, Nuevo Back Bay at this point. So. Uh, like it's sort of the the next level of back bay, and I think that that's largely responsible. For the, hey, the gay can we point a new phrase here? But, gay vitalization. Can we? <laughs> is there a better one than that? Is there like a Vi- vitalization? Uh, that sounds just Japanese. <laughs> While they're thinking uh, about it, let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> Josh Thanks. McNeil. Josh McNeil is in the city of brotherly love, but not in a gay way. But who do you love, Josh? We're in a gay way. We're terrible at this. We're trying so nice. <laughs> Anyway, uh, you know, my first thought was really Tom Hanks from Sleepless in Seattle, but uh, there's, uh, you know, there's just something really sweet about that. But, but on second thought, I'm going to have to go with Bill the Butcher, uh, Daniel Day Lewis's character. <laughs> wow! From Hanks wow! Nice. Good call. Uh, just because, frankly, you know, I, 
if I'm going manly, like uh, I want something really manly, and and the, the you know the wooden eye, uh, which is a terrifying splinter prospect, and and the knife throwing, and the uh, frankly just ability to butcher tasty cuts of meat. I feel like would make for a lasting and loving relationship between us. Hey, are you are you Irish at all, Josh? I, I am a bit Irish, yes. Oh, is, your Roman popery <laughs> would not uh, would not be welcome in his home. That could be a yeah, tense yeah. relationship. Yeah, it turns out that we like came over like a little bit before the sort of wave of Irish immigrants. So I think we still could have like gotten in with the you know ironically named natives. Gotcha. Well, it would yeah. be a question of whether you guys would have you know, like, like hate hate relations or whether he would be a know nothing for you. Oh, oh. Pun. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, that was the like first nineteenth century political party pun I've heard in this week. Oh, well, you just keep your wig on your head, or you're going to hear another one pretty soon. Josh, you've been reading my mugwump-inspired ironical poetry. <laughs> now I was, you know, I was, I was hanging out with some anti-Masonic dudes earlier, and they were uh, they were spouting them off. Cool, Dave Schechner is next in the alphabet. <laughs> It, it's hot out there for a mugwump, baby. Um, you know, I got two. I, I think I always have two, so I'm sorry for wasting people's time. Um, yeah, so one of them is uh, is Eustace Tilly. Uh, anybody know Eustace Tilly? He's the uh, cartoon guy. Yeah, he. You know, I figured like cartoon New Yorker. Uh, well, you know, which New Yorker would I like to shag up with? How about the New Yorker? Um, also, you know, he's like remarkably foppish and, and I'm sort of looking at the image right now, uh, has a, like, a, a noticeably like <laughs> elongated neck and throat, which I'm thinking could be useful because I'd like to knit scarves. Um, okay. <laughs> but you know, the one I'd actually go for and like, you know, think hard on this people before you respond, because I've, I've said this for years. Um, the New Yorker, I would probably end up getting gay married to is the statue of Liberty. Um, because I'm convinced that it's actually a man in drag. <laughs> you look at the face, it, it's wearing this sort of like muumu type garb, like clearly trying to cover up any, uh, any, any evidence of or evidence for lack thereof of secondary sexual characteristics. It's just, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's sort of overly preachy. This sort of, you know, the give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, blah, blah, blah. It's sort of like the early 19th century equivalent of we're here, we're queer, get used to it, right? Dave, um, if yeah. uh, six years of living in New York have taught me anything, uh-huh. it's that um, a man dressed in drag is, uh, if anything, going to wear garb that accentuates secondary, non-existent secondary ca- sex Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. Mm. But, you know, I mean, the fact that it... So, it, um, so, so maybe she's a lesbian. Could be. I mean, I always thought that she was... Did anyone else see the toga as being sort of in a plaid? Like, is is the book like a Home Depot catalog or nothing? I don't know. I mean, I always thought that the Statue of Liberty was black because the Statue of Liberty has chains that are broken around her feet. So it's implied Hmm. that she was like a slave that is now free, right? Uh, And and that was sort of politically relevant at the time and sort of the legacy of liberty in America. So I always thought that she was supposed to be a sort of a... The secret story of her was that she was a freed slave. Um... Well, she's, but, uh, she's actually she's modeled after the sculptor's mother, right? Right, right. Who is French? Which, right, yeah, yeah. Again, like yeah. both of those things, modeled after your mother and French. You know, not the most heteronormative things I've heard. <laughs> um, fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Oh man, but she sure does get wrecked in a lot of movies. That's for sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's right. She, she, she's got baggage, so she's perfect for me. <laughs> she's, she's got low expectations. Speaking speaking of movies uh, with the Statue of Liberty in them. <laughs> Make it happen. <laughs> do what you're about to do. Go for it. 
I, uh, you know, if this question were um, who's your favorite New Yorker, I would probably have to say John Stewart is my favorite right. New Yorker. But uh, it's not. It's who do you want to marry? And actually, though, I think domestic life with John Stewart would be wonderful uh, because he'd make me laugh, uh, like Roger does for Jessica Rabbit. I um, I think hmm. that uh, he's too old for me. So I'm trying to think about who's someone who's my age. You know, who's around our age. Uh, uh, our age being the members of this podcast. And you know what? It reali- I realized that, um, you know who's, who's in his late 20s now? Uh, Bill Murray and Sigourney Weaver's son from Ghostbusters 2. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that kid was born in the, uh, the mid-80s, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, now is, um, you know, and so now is what twenty six, twenty seven, something, something, uh, something around there. And so uh, you know, uh, marrying age certainly a marriageable age. And uh, as long as 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 long as their son combines the best characteristics of both Bill Murray and Sigourney Weaver, I am uh, hooked. So uh, that too, oh. name nameless uh, nameless son of uh, Bill and Sigourney Weaver. Will you marry me? Hey, I Matt, actually have you'll to, finally oh, get to engage in your Vigo the Carpathian role-playing fantasies. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the trick, the, the wonderful little uh, box on the display floor that you're opening Monty Hall style, Matt, is that at least in Ghostbusters 2, uh, Oscar is actually played by two babies, uh, William Duchendorf and Henry Duchendorf II, also known as Hank Duchendorf. So you'd be marrying into, uh, into a, a little... Uh, Triple marriage there, a little bit of a you know um, Oscar on Matt on Oscar uh, situation. We wouldn't, that, we wouldn't just be gamarried; we'd be gamormans as well. Oh, that's not nice. That's, <laughs> that's no, we got to we, we got to move on from from this before we offend somebody. Right? Wait, before, no, we before we do that, I just want to point out that Matt rather did compare himself to Jessica Rabbit earlier. <laughs> <laughs> And actually, it's uncredited, but he's actually voiced by Kathleen Turner. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, that also, if you marry them, don't you own a piece of Facebook? That no, that's that's wrong. I I shouldn't have said that about Mormons who are perfectly lovely people. I know several and have worked with a bunch of them, and they're actually some of the nicest people I know. I shouldn't make cheap jokes at their expense. God, people they might not be able to be president, but they can be the Republican nominee for president. <laughs> you shouldn't make crossed. jokes. You should make a Tony winning uh, Tony Award winning musical at their expense. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's right. Man, um, that's all right. Uh, moving on, Cars Two opened in theaters this weekend and is the first Pixar movie. Is kind of being hailed as the first Pixar movie uh, to be not awesome. Anyone see Cars Two? No, no. So no, we are qualified. Awesome. To, we are qualified to talk about it. Exactly. I feel like a lot of guys talk about cars without having any idea what they're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> like, <that's> the <laughs> we, um... Yeah, you know. So it's got good handling. I like the pickup when it really comes up the hill. But you know, I really feel like the. Uh, I really feel like the tuning. Like, tune it up a little bit. Just get a little bit more power out of it. You know what I mean? Like a little bit. Uh, just if I tinker around under the hood, by which I mean open the hood when the smoke starts ushering forward into my now immobile piece of iron junk that is sitting in the middle of a suburban and, and also uh, yeah and then like uh, then like nod your head kind of bob your head up and down and kind of purse your lips and go hmm 
Yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. No, I can I can do this. Making grunting long- noises a la Tim Allen in Home Improvement. <laughs> you know? As long as it's changing a car and I have like an hour and a half and nobody's watching, I'm totally adept with cars. <laughs> like as long as it's changing a tire. Yeah, exactly. Anyway. But yeah, but yeah, we can talk about cars and like what, what the deal is with that. Because I mean like uh, – I mean it's not a secret exactly what the situation is, right? Like it's a sequel. It seems kind of exploitative. Um, it doesn't yeah, – it totally, seems to be the- – uh, Yeah, they show all that car nudity and it really doesn't advance the plot. <laughs> oh, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so, are, you, are you saying exploitative yeah. in the sense of like you know exploiting it for crazy merchandising opportunities uh well i guess that's that really the point, one of the main right? reasons why they made cars too yeah. right because the original cars lends itself extremely well to toys merchandising 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 right well, well let's Belinky, talk about i mean Belinky, who who is the only uh you know the only overthinker who has a child right and that, that we know we of. Know of. Oh. No. <laughs> it probably doesn't. Oh, shit, I'm early. <laughs> Sorry. To it, Dave. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, Belinky's son is into um, uh, into the movie Cars. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I, mm. I would. That's an understatement. That, let's say that's like saying like the overthinking of podcasts is into discretions and discourse. <laughs> I, um, <laughs> yeah, I. Uh, oh, I thought it was. I thought uh, his son's. I thought his son's thing was uh, Star Wars, but it's. I guess it's Cars also. And Kids have more than one thing, and they change their minds about it frequently. So, yeah, I guess so. That's yeah. I think, I think Matt's more into Star Wars and has sort of <laughs> yeah. forced it on Oliver. No, no, no. I think the deal is that all that um, Oliver is into Clone Wars uh, more than the original Star Wars, and that's what Matt was troubled by, right? Is that like he only knows like the sort of Anakin Skywalker, Obi Wan Kenobi, like sidekick action hero stuff, and not like the actual, not actual, but the story that we all know and love from the seventies and eighties. <laughs> Yeah, is it possible that that Oliver's just like finally reached that age where he realizes that he has to pretend to like certain things that his dad likes so as to keep the relationship <laughs> healthy? And he's like, I love cars, so and also that thing you like, Dad. I like that too. <laughs> but I, I'd be surprised if uh, Matt didn't take his kid to see uh, Star Wars. This um, not Star Wars. There you go. <laughs> I would just be he- surprised if Matt didn't take his kid to see Star Wars this weekend when Cars Two was released. No, well, he, I mean, it made a lot of money. It got terrible reviews. It got like you know a thirty something on Rotten Tomatoes. I know it's not you know the best aggregator of such things, but it got like thirty percent Rotten Tomatoes. Where the first Cars got a seventy. Um, yeah, but it made a lot of money. Well, and, the, and the first Cars, I mean, the what the line on the first Cars was: "Look, it's not as good as the rest of the Pixar movies, but you'll enjoy it." Mm-hmm. Yeah, I suppose that seems to be the buzz. Uh, I mean, it, it took in sixty eight million dollars Friday through Sunday. Uh, according to a Disney estimate, uh, which uh, kicked Bad Teacher in the Keister, which I guess is the location which most of the movie takes place in, right? And it's like, <laughs> but uh, uh, but yeah, so it did okay. So people are seeing it. The, but yeah, uh, the the back bay, as we call it, the back bay, yes, <laughs> the South End, as it were, yeah. <laughs> or the, um, the Nuevo Back Bay. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Uh, well, what I mean, yeah. well, what I meant by exploitative is like, well, I don't know. Am I interrupting? Were you following no, up with something? No, no, yours is probably so, better than so mine. Let, so let's talk about exploitation for a second, right? Because exploitation is an interesting concept, right? Like the way exploitation was explained to me when I was studying political science and perhaps other people who are more – and this is actually political philosophy. You're talking about political philosophy is that like when somebody um, generates a certain amount of value – Right, uh, for some sort of for some reason, either because they they made something or they thought something or they did something, and they generate a certain amount of value. Um, exploitation is when you make an agreement for the value that that person produces, usually by labor, in which you pay them less than what their labor is worth, and you then profit off of their labor. 
right? And that's like that in the formal sense, that's what exploitation is. That's like how it works. Um, and then what we're really talking about when we talk about exploitation is sort of excessive exploitation versus like normal exploitation because that's also called a job. Yeah, right, so it, like it, it, all yeah. forms of employment basically boil down to that at some level, right? Exactly, and, and the, the question is like, well, you know, the, what's worse than being exploited? Not being exploited, but but we have this sort of exploitation is is uh, the difference between exploitation and employment is a lot like the difference between like a religion and a cult uh, in several ways. One of them is that like you'll run into a lot of people on the internet that will just start screaming as long as you start as soon as you start talking about the subject. <laughs> but the second way, a more interesting way, is that like. <laughs> It's a qualitative statement. It probably doesn't. Oh, shit. Sorry. <laughs> it's a qualitative statement that's one of degree that we feel like we understand intuitively, but that, like, it's hard to make boundaries on, right? Like, because is exploitation different in one country than in another if it has a different standard of living? And what about the legal norms and the social norms? And, like, it was, is it a, like if I exploit you and you live in a place where the average person is making, like, you know, $10 a day or whatever, and I, and I, and I do that to you? Uh, because you didn't expect to make more and you're not embarrassed or hurt by that, are you like actually suffering less than somebody who you would be ashamed to make that kind of money? Like that sort of thing. Um, versus also the idea that like creating global imbalances in wages creates you know downward wage, pr- wage pressure on people in high wage economies, um, be- and that in turn that means it is sort of in the same market after a fashion. But basically, I'm saying if Cars Two is exploitative, that means that it is sort of taking more value from what the Cars franchise has achieved to this point than it is adding to it as a movie, right? Like, so is Cars 2 doing less to sort of strengthen the brand of Cars, strengthen the franchise of Cars, add to the sort of overall artistic, uh, cultural value of the Cars franchise? Is it, is it mooching more off of that by creating an occasion for buying merchandise than it's adding to it by being a movie that sort of adds to the canon and, and enriches the stories, right? And that's what I would say. So any thoughts about either, like, how I described exploitation I'm sure that there's a formal definition in academia that I'm not quite nailing it on, but that's sort of the one that was presented to me when I was learning about it. Uh, any thoughts about exploitation? Any thoughts about cars too being exploitative? Uh, or any thoughts about like sort of intellectual exploitation or cultural exploitation or any of that stuff? Well, the, I mean, the exploitation and the connection of, of the film business, um, you know, uh, exploitation has a specific meaning in terms of... Um, uh, in terms of selling films to a mass audience, right? That like, uh-huh. and this is why we say like teen exploitation movies or black exploitation movies, black exploitation or things like this, yeah. right? The uh, exploitation is the word for um, um, selling selling a movie to an audience, right? That that it's like uh, that the, the the property, which is right in the parlance of the the entertainment business, the property is exploited in certain markets. Um, uh, meaning it's sold it's sold to those markets so mm. uh, uh you know it's a, <laughs> like a lot of things the um the uh the term for dicking over the little guy is co-opted by the entertainment industry um as just uh you know how we do business normally day to day business as usual yeah <laughs> oh so so exploitation when you're talking about exploitation and exploiting a market there's not a negative connotation that you're giving them less than what they deserve because you know that they're going to buy it anyway uh, because they have like a need, they have like a demand for this product, right? Yeah, like, but that's, I mean, well, that's, it's, that's, it's called, also, that's called Hollywood. Yeah, you, well, you have, no, to, I mean, you not have to define, I mean, Pete, what do you think um, a moviegoer deserves in terms of a movie, right? Well, that's it's a not, question. It's not like a, a basic need, um, you know, and, and it's not something that they have necessarily earned. I mean, just, you know, despite what I as a fanboy would often argue about any of the things that I like. I mean, it, you know, it's a consumable good that's used for the purposes of entertainment, so... I don't know. I think the definitions get hazy, right? 
Well, I, w- I would argue to that. I mean, it is, it is hazy. Good use, These are- good use of breath. Dave, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. I mean, I would say that the movie-going audience earns the value of the movie that they go see by virtue of paying for a ticket to go see it, um, and and that what um, there's a certain stickiness to people's habits uh, and the things that people do regularly, wherein a, a consumer will keep doing something a certain way uh, after it doesn't become uh, viable. A good example of this is price stickiness, right? Like if I go and I buy a, a can of deodorant for three dollars. Um, and then, like, uh, somebody tries to change the price of a can of deodorant uh, because of a change in the fundamental economics of deodorant. Like, I'm going to be wanting to buy that can of deodorant for $3 for longer than it either makes sense for me to do it or for them to do it. So if someone's trying to lower the price, um, I might actually not buy the cheaper deodorant sometimes, more than, more than is generally – I mean, of course, people do seek out well, deodorant. Yeah, that, that's, that's because of, the, like, the perceived loss of quality in addition to the loss of price. Well, right? yeah, but I think it's also just force of habit. Um, yeah. like, and wages are sticky because people don't like to take pay cuts, um, and and also because pay raises are are slow sometimes. So like so wages are sticky, and and, and a lot of goods prices are, are sticky, and they don't change as quickly as they might because of just people's kind of uh, wanting things to be the same as they were or wanting things to meet their expectations. So like I might see a whole bunch of movies in a row that are of a certain sort because I saw one movie and I really liked it. I'm like okay, I'm going to like this kind of movie, and one sh- you know crappy movie of that sort isn't going to turn me away from it. Or, Two crappy or movies, like um uh, like a, a certain actor or a director. Right. Oh, it's that's even better example. Yeah. And like, so I would say that uh, that exploiting them might Tim, be saying. Tim, and actually, let's pick an actor. Uh, yeah. Sorry, let's pick a director. Uh, Tim Burton, right? Okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, like, right. Just because the Nightmare Before Christmas was awesome does not mean that. Uh, uh, well, and Beetlejuice. And Beetlejuice was awesome. <laughs> you know, and the first Batman movie. Yes. Uh, first yep. and second Batman movie. Sure. And Big Fish. But it doesn't mean and that... Big, that yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm, okay, not my favorite, but sure. Okay, yeah. I, I, <laughs> I, I respect it more than I love it. Um, but, like, it doesn't uh, mean... That, that doesn't mean that, Char- that Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory is going to be any damn good. Or Charlie... Yeah. No, sorry. Willy yeah. Wonka and the Chocolate Factory is the old one, uh, which is awesome. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is going to be any damn good, right? Right, or like the, the Alice in Wonderland movie is something that you should go see if you enjoy the previous Tim Burton movies necessarily. Yeah. Right? yeah. Um, and I think that, that's, that there's Sleepy, a point Sleepy there. Hollow. It's both a sort of ideological point and a practical point because it's like, well, if people are going to come see your movie and they're going to give you a certain amount of value and they're expecting a certain amount of value in return, by sort of bait and switching them, you can exploit their loyalty to your brand and like take more value from them than you give them, knowing that you're giving them an inferior product and taking the same amount of money for it. I think um, the better director example in this case is not Tim Burton, but uh, our friend M. Night Shyamalan, right? Yeah, sort of the neoclassic example, right? Yeah. yeah. Shyamalan's exploitation. <laughs> so if you like. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Mark, like, Mark are, you, are you trying to take back the M. Night? Oh, oh. Sorry. Uh, no, I'm not, oh. Dave. Not at all. I'm not trying to do that. Yeah, actually, none of us at Overthinking want to take back the M. Night. Um, what? Yeah, right. That's. that's uh, that's only because I didn't rent it in the first place. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> anyway, continue. That's I, I wasn't the only one. Have we talked about the laughter uh, in the previews for Devil? Oh yeah, that's yeah. the that's the uh, the elevator movie, right? That's, Where it's like yeah. oh, <laughs> something <laughs> in the elevator. What is it in the elevator? And everybody's like, it's like really tense, right? Like the preview is tense, right? Sure. Uh, yeah, yeah, and it yeah, like it's builds. A standard, yeah, it's a standard kind of horror movie preview, right? Where like horrific violence is going to v- be visited on one of these attractive people. Um, yeah. 
you know and so it's yeah exactly and so the audience was with it until from the mind of m night Shyamalan. and it, yeah and, that, and that's when they <laughs> they burst out laughing but i think we i think we talked about that yeah just cuz you like the sixth sense um just cuz you tolerated signs up to the point where they showed the creature uh you know doesn't mean the village is going to be any good right right or and lady, so like or lady in the water yeah and, and so when i hear about like black exploitation I always thought it was because, like, black people will see movies that have black people in them because there's this demand for it. And they, have, they don't really have as much of an option and freedom of choice as other consumers for this sort of thing because there aren't a lot of movies of that sort. So I, I thought that black exploitation meant that – and I, I'm, I'm saying here that I'm incorrect because I think the way you're describing it, it I believe it. It sounds credible. Um, and I trust you implicitly. Actually, according to Chuck Musser, professor of film theory in the one humanities course I took in college, uh, the term itself was originally coined because uh, it was the first sort of like movement in American cinema where uh, African-Americans were involved in sort of – were, were centrally involved in every point of the film's production and distribution. Um, so like while the, while the, you know, the plots themselves tend to be like, you know, uh, you know, borderline racist, if not certainly very caricaturist, you, you had black writers, you had black directors, yep. you had black producers and so forth. It's like exploiting their existing resources to create something that's innately theirs. Uh, it's self-exploitation. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Rather yeah. than, ra- rather than black actors being, uh, sort of used as, you know, as tools in a white studio system, you know, you have yeah. a, you have a black studio system. Well, no, you don't have a black studio system. I mean, at least not until Tyler Perry. But, you know, it's, uh, it's funny. For a lot of American history, I guess there were black, and, uh, you know, and I don't know. I'm not uh, kind of party to it because uh, of being white, right? Like, but there, there was kind of a parallel black entertainment industry that, mm-hmm. um, that uh, you know, kind of went along, went on a parallel track to the white entertainment industry. Well, because so, like, the vaudeville halls were segregated. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. So there yeah. was, I, and it was called the Chitlin Circuit, right? Like the yeah, yeah. black... The black vaudeville halls, and yep. the thing is, just like, like the Negro leagues in baseball. Yep, sure, and yep. and so like one of the things I guess I gather from from learning a little bit of the history of it is that you could work blue in the Chitlin circuit, whereas you couldn't on the the regular vaudeville circuit. So that what was going on in the black theaters was actually a lot more entertaining um, than in the white theaters because you weren't constrained by this you know sort of ridiculous puritanical set of um, uh, set of constraints, uh, and. Um, and so, like, uh, so this is something that that actually, like, I, I I'm not sure that it, that it exists in quite so organized a form to this day. But like Tyler Perry, who we've talked about a lot before, mm-hmm. um, is a is a guy who has kind of taken advantage of this when he was before he started making movies. And he's he is a guy who sort of makes movies at his own studio, which is in the South, uh, you know, sort of outside of the. Uh, outside of the mainstream Hollywood studio system and, and sort of uses it as it suits him um, to distribute his movies to a mass audience. But, uh, uh, you know, w- when he was just, before he started making movies, when he was just making um, stage plays and touring them around the country, he was going to these, uh, you know, to these black theaters in a kind of modern-day Chitlin circuit of, uh, you know, of... Um, of live what live theater entertainment and then like videotaping the things and and selling them and he built up this this huge audience uh without sort of mainstream white entertainment being aware of him at all which i think is awesome you know mm-hmm. like uh, we're tra- at overthinking it we're trying to do the same thing for smart people oh of any, <laughs> of, of any ethnicity or you know <laughs> 
good save there, Matt. And by good save, I mean not so good save. Yeah. Good Lord. No, no, really, I, no I, I, I totally, that's I totally, that's, what, that's yeah. what I meant, actually, is that like mainstream Hollywood seems kind of, you know, I don't know, Transformers 3 doesn't seem targeted at the, the uh, you know, I don't know, at the smartest audience. Anyway, never mind. But yeah, no, but I think that um, that then I, this is what I'm saying is what's the connection then to to the Cars movie, right? Is that like we have these different models for people having these sort of niche expectations of cinema, and I guess maybe the the writing question is like, do you really need to see a movie? And I think that this is is something that you know that has been brought up. Like, like is it something that people are going to go see anyway, whether it's good or not? Um, is does Cars two? What's the built in audience for Cars two? And then do studio? I mean, not even studios. I guess. The studio would say it doesn't. The studio says it doesn't have an obligation, a moral obligation, to give a movie watcher the thing that they deserve, the thing that they've been led to to think that they're going to get. Right? The sort of like uh, you don't want to cheat your customer by giving them, you know, a raw deal. But in movies, it's you know, you can give somebody a, a product and they can't necessarily get their money back if it's bad. I mean, I guess if it's really, really bad. Um, but uh, I mean, what other pro- how do product products generally work that way? Like, if you buy something and it's it's defective in some way, or it provides you with less value than you expected, you can generally return it. But if you see, like, I guess with movies, that expectation it's tougher because it's well, sliding uh, scale and there's well, reviews and and people know a little bit ahead of time. But uh, I, th- I think it's more that like you know the, the the experience you're paying for is like sitting in the theater and, and passing time, you know, watching the film, right? Which there's the two words: air conditioning. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, here's, if, that, I, if that were true, then museums would make money, Mark. <laughs> well, I can draw um, a parallel. I, I mean, if you can keep going, though, of course, because I've been talking. No, I was just going to say, like, there's no way to get that time back, right? Like, how is the studio, uh, you know, it, like, you need to, you know, if you buy a pair of pants and there's just a giant hole in them in the middle, you know, uh, you know, you return the pants in exchange for the money that you've gotten, right? Like, right, you can't right. return the time that you sat in that theater um, for the money back that you're going to get for the return ticket. Yeah. It's too bad because you know what? Terminator Salvation had a giant hole in its plot. <laughs> Sing. I don't want it to return that. Believe me. But I don't think that the reason that you return it is because the retailer is going to use that to generate value. Because a lot of the time it's because the retailer bought it from somebody else. And if it was defective, then the retailer can go back to the distributor and get their money back from the distributor. Yeah, like it, when it, I worked it, at Barnes & Noble. It's holy pants all the way down, right? Yeah, yeah well, just- but yeah. Finish your finish your story. When you worked at Barnes and Noble, oh, when I worked at Barnes and Noble, I worked in the warehouse, and people would return books, and then we would get money back from the book distributors for sending the books back. Like there would be a chain where Barnes and Noble would also return books that were returned, um, right, for being defective in some way. So, so it was like uh, it's not it's not like oh, we're going to take your book and we're going to magically turn it into coins, right? Like we're going to hit it with a hammer that we got out of a box, and it's going to become thirty coins, and then we can get an extra life. It's like because uh, things don't turn into money like magic. It, Someone has to be willing to pay for it or it's worth nothing. Um, so, yeah, so it's not necessarily like the company doesn't give you your money back because they got the thing of value back from you and the thing of value had an intrinsic value. And they, get, they, they want the thing of value back from you as sort of proof that you had it and also as sort of a deterrent to try to make it a little bit harder, a barrier to try to make it a little bit harder to get your money back, right? Um, and they want you to be – and it just like, seems like a fair deal to the customer and to the company. It makes it less likely that people are going to ask for money back falsely um, or that like, people will go to the trouble for everything that's defective. Like I can bring a defective gallon of milk that's soured back to the supermarket and sometimes they'll give me money back for it, but I really hope they don't do anything with it, right? Like, I hope that they don't, like, monetize that sour milk in some way. Um, so well, not, a, not, a, yeah. not as food, but, you know, 
as, as, thing, that, yeah. as thing that can be thrown at passers-by, yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they um, sell it to rowdy teenagers that throw at trucks. Hells yes. yeah, man. That's, that's called creating value. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a value add. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Level oh, up. <laughs> well, yeah, but it's like the the retailer does it in order to keep in seeing the good graces of the client of the customer. It's sort of an ethical thing, and I guess it's an ethical thing that's reinforced by customer behavior because they won't want to necessarily go back to people if they don't can't get their money back from things that they return for being defective. Um, but movies don't work that way. Although I, with a parallel, I wanted to draw. Because the thing I, that you said that I really think is interesting is that when you go to see a movie, you're not paying for the entertainment that they put on the screen. You're paying for the time that you sit in the theater, right? Because that's like the oh, thing yeah. that they guarantee to deliver to you, that you don't get a guarantee that you're going to see a given movie. Um, I mean, I think that that's necessarily I mean, I mean if, if nothing else, in the bare minimum, the, the reason why you're paying the money to see the movie in the theater as opposed to consuming the movie in all the other uh, venues that are now available to us. Mm-hmm. You know, unequivocally, the thing that the theater is selling to you when they sell you the tickets is the ability to use their theater to see the movie, uh, right, as opposed right. to waiting for it to come on TV or DVD or streaming or, you know, ripping or going to Chinatown or whatever, you know, all the other ways you can get a movie now. Yeah. Which makes an interesting point about cost basis that I want to talk about for a second, because something else big happens to me. Um, and and I'm, I'm, I know I'm monopolizing time. I'll let you guys talk, you know, just jump in whenever you want. But this is a big, big magic card news happened recently, which was that they had one of these cards that was, had, was so, so overpowered that they printed it that it was worth $100. It was the most valuable card in, in many years that was new uh, by a large margin. Um, it, it was kind of ruining the game. And there was another card that was also way more valuable than it would have been than most cards would have been and and these cards were in like 80% of the decks that were winning uh big matches and 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 it was just like degenerative the most degenerative format ever not ever but like in years and years and years you know maybe in 10 years the most degenerative magic the gathering competitive format in terms of like only one magic card deck had become useful or only cards that played these decks that played these cards become useful because cards were so much better than all the other options and they had these this big secondary market value, and uh, attendance at events was starting to drop because people didn't want to play because they couldn't afford the cards. They didn't want to play in a degenerate format. It wasn't fun. So people were stopping. They weren't buying as many Magic cards. They weren't going to as many tournaments. And uh, well, there's not. It, it hasn't trickled through to sales yet because things are sticky. But over time, if people don't go to as many tournaments, then that follows through into being less sales, and that's like a bad thing in this environment in particular when you know these sales numbers are really important, or else there's like a lot a lot of leeway in these companies to make up for losses that are unexpected so they banned the cards right they banned jace the mind sculptor and the stoneforge mystic in the standard tournament environment which is the most popular tournament environment by a large margin in doing so they erased literally millions and millions of dollars of equity that these cards had in the secondary market um, people had the card instantly dropped by half. The, the, they're playable in other formats, like older formats, but only in, in the standard format. They're not, they're not valuable anymore. Like there was a, a liquidity crisis of Stoneforge Mystics, where their buy price on the internet dropped from like you know over well over twenty dollars to like ten cents, right? And so all this value is destroyed. Um, and so the question is: here's the question that you posit is like, well, what is the loss that has been incurred, you know, by the customers because of what the Wizards, had, the Coast, has done? Um, and in the they, they they clearly don't they don't actively participate in the secondary market. Um, so uh, yeah, they, they don't they don't uh, they don't participate in the secondary market directly. They always comment that they never want to intervene in the secondary market. They want anything to do with it because legal implications are too great. Um, but uh, in the past, sometimes, way past, when they banned cards, they would allow you to trade the banned card in for a pack, right? 
uh, for a pack of cards. Um, the notion being that to them, because they don't participate in the secondary market, the cost basis, the maximum cost basis for any one rare card is a pack of magic cards, right? Because what you pay them for is not a specific card. You pay them for a pack of cards, and therefore, like, you're entitled to pack cards. They're not doing that this time around because the cards, first of all, the cards haven't dropped below the value of a card on, like, a long-run basis. So there isn't really an argument for them, anybody actually incurring a loss. Like, you can still get your money's worth for those cards. Not from if you bought them off the secondary market, but if you bought, got them in packs, you can still recoup the cost of the product that Wizards sold you. But it's an interesting question because it says, okay, well, what is the value of the thing that the company is selling to me? Like, what is the transaction that, I, that the company is accountable for? And then, of course, we, as the sort of extended economy of consumers, we place other values on things. And I think this works for cultural values, too. It's like, I think that X movie is going to be Y good. Why amount of good? Um, you know, I think that, oh, I really want to see, you know, the Harry Potter movie in 3D versus 2D or, or this or that. Like, we make all sorts of value judgments about the movies that we see. But when we think about the exchange that's made financially, um, what's being sold to us is something that's a little bit more cut and dried. And there's never any guarantees that's going to be any good. Right, because we think we're paying for good, but really we're paying for lights being flickered on the screen and seats, right, and then air conditioning and a place that's going to have soda and things like that. Um, although we don't, we don't, we pay extra for the soda by a large margin, uh, more than probably the street value of Stoneforge Mystics these days. But uh, I digress. But anyway, I just thought this is an interesting talking about cost basis. Um, cost basis is important in particular when you're when you invest your money and you have to take capital gains and losses. There's like a record of. It, it's an important number. Uh, it's a record of, of what you paid for the thing that you got. Um, and, and then as the value of a thing fluctuates on the market, what you paid to get it kind of like carries through and helps calculate the tax situation. But I'm not a tax advisor. This isn't financial advice. And please, I, I don't like to talk about this stuff too much on the podcast, but it's relevant in this case. Um, so please don't sue me or call the regulators um, because of what I said about Stoneforge Mystics. All right. I've just – I'm spent. That's what – I'm throwing that all on the table. Um, and so, so to, summarize, so to summarize, Pete, in your professional opinion and that of your employer, Stoneforge Mystics are guaranteed to go up in value, <laughs> just, just as succinctly as stated. Look, like, no call, call this Mint the Franklin Mint, Mint baby. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. No, for, not all Franklin Mint plates go up in value. Some go down. Lies! Lies! <laughs> Oh man, not an emotional value, especially my Commander Riker Franklin Mint plate. <laughs> that sounds. Uh, so, this is great. again, but you 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 didn't pay for the plate, Pete. You spent for the years that you were going to spend eating off of Will Riker's face. <laughs> right. That's what she said. And- Wait. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I, uh, th- this is um, this is the best discussion of Cars Two on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't take credit for that. Mark wrote that into the back channel a few minutes ago. I mean, it's true. Um, if we if we can, I'd like to move on to something. Actually, sure. Um, which is, uh, uh, I I think it's high time that this podcast did a little bit of listener feedback. What? What? Yeah, I think it's Wait. high time. And so I would like to read you. I would like to read to Wait. you a listener email now. May, may I do that? You may proceed. Make it oh, so fun. No. <laughs> Engage. Is that, Please, uh, This is an email from Kevin. Um, and Kevin has this to say. Hey, I don't know who exactly will see this message, but I just wanted to chime in on the TI-83 discussion on the podcast. Yes. <laughs> We're with you, Kevin. Uh, Kevin continues. I'm uh, currently a senior in high school. 
And my freshman year, my friend and I had essentially the same experience as you described programming in TI Basic. Uh, I had what I thought was an original idea of writing an RPG and later brick, but without the bricks, over hours and hours <laughs> of callousing my thumb over the alpha key. I hear stories about aspiring programmers in the 70s and 80s teaching themselves about computers and lament the fact that it was so simple to do so in those days before we could get 11 million transistors, 11 trillion transistors uh, on a chip the width of a fingernail. Uh, However, hearing you guys talk about identical experiences with the same exact calculator I have made me feel a lot differently about that. And, uh, yeah. Kevin actually wrote that. (laughs) He actually wrote. And, uh, ellipsis. Yeah. Love the show, Kevin. Thank you, Kevin. You are are a person after our own own heart. Is it possible he was dictating? <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's dragon picks up the uh, the ellipsis when you you know talk into the microphone <laughs> on your on your. That speaking seems so natural. I uh, I I flashed my um. <laughs> it's, uh, uh, this sentence uh. can go nowhere good. I flashed my math teacher. No, I flashed my TI eighty five calculator. And it, uh, it, it didn't file any kind of sanctions against me. No, I flashed my, uh, my ROM, my TI-85 calculator firmware, with uh, custom firmware that allowed me to install something called Z-Shell, which was a, uh, a whole oh, other yeah. environment. Z-Shell was the bomb. Yeah, Damn it was, straight. It was great. It lets you do all kinds of great stuff uh, that you couldn't it, do otherwise. It was, the, it was the Linux of its day. Mm-hmm. Um, also, the TI-85 I, I, was like the MacBook Pro of the graphing calculators uh, of its day. Compared to the TI-82, it was like... Oh, yeah, compared to the TI-82, the TI-85 was like... It was built like uh, a tank, you know? I still use it to the I, I gotta say, like, I, I still use the 82. And uh, I say, like, yeah, I'm a... I gotta say, I Dave, like, the TI-82 was a kind of navy blue color. TI-85 was black. You uh-huh. know? It was cooler. Man, uh, the SR-71. Just... Real quick question from someone who who didn't do any of this. <laughs> Why were you programming calculators? Like to what end? Oh, because no, you can, Josh. Yeah, I mean, because oh, you can. Josh, the fact that let, you're let asking that question this. shows that you you really don't understand the impetus behind programming calculators at all. Josh, I, I know your personal history, and back in high school, you were getting laid. So. Um, <laughs> We, on the other hand, were programming. We, we could make a Sierpinski triangle on our TI-82s. Oh. Let, let me, let me ex- try <laughs> to explain Math majors it. frown. So they, <laughs> the would provide you, <laughs> they would provide you with these graphing calculators to do you know, uh, advanced mathematical work in your classes, right? relatively advanced for being a kid. And you couldn't be expected to buy these things yourself a lot of the time because um, you're in high school and whatever. Uh, and so you sit there and you're in math class and it's boring because math class is always boring, and they give you this cute little computer to play with, that, and then you, know, you have the option, you have the ability to program and play games in it, right? Um, I mean, I think that the, the impetus to take advantage of that opportunity rather than pay attention in math class is, is and physics class for that matter, um, is fairly universal. What people don't necessarily have is, the, is the, the means and the opportunity, right? Everyone has the motive. Everyone would rather be doing like this sort of explorative thing than be you know, listening in math class. Maybe not everybody, but most people. Not everybody actually has like the sort of wherewithal to, to make this happen, and it's it feels good. It feels it feels like a good thing to do. So, I, yeah, and the people, I, I, I'll also oh, chime yeah, in. Like, right. the thing I'll say is that you'd return the calculator to the teacher at the end of the class a lot of the time, and then the calculator would get lent out to somebody else. So you could program something into the calculator that then somebody else could use if they had the calculator. 
uh, potentially. Yeah, it, it, so. Sort of like the uh, that version of like micro comics, you know. Mm. So you, yeah, yeah, yeah. You put something sort of subversive on there and like just hope that somebody cool got it the next period. Yeah, or if you mm. could like if you could find the uh, the equation that that plotted a curve, uh, the function for like a dong shape, you could put that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It would turn it on and there'd be a penis on the calculator, which is yeah, the, worth the, it. Hyper, the hyperbolic dongoid, yeah. <laughs> um, that's it's technically. No, I'll, I'll say, like, you know, in, in another, like, of a long list of cases of history repeating itself, you know, now, like, we lament that, like, oh, kids today, they have these, you know, billion transistor devices that they get for $50 discounted from their, you know, wireless phone provider. By in my day, we had the TI-82. You know, back in my day, when we had the TI-82, my teachers were lamenting the fact that, oh, you know, well, we, we would do all this stuff using slide rules. And you guys are all just, you know, so mollycoddled for having, you know, transistors that are capable of doing this. Um, you know, you know pretty much everything that has to do with the sciences. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. So, um, can you explain? <laughs> can you explain the function of a slide rule to me? Like, I, I understand what it's for, but can you explain how it works? I actually, I don't. Uh, I, you know, this falls into the the fact that I know pretty ah, much everything to do on the side. I have defeated you, Dave Sheck. <laughs> I will take oh, your wife and all the lands you own. You could try. <laughs> I, mostly own, I mostly own debt, rather. <laughs> and besides, my wife can take you in a fight. Uh, I know for a fact my wife can take you in a fight. Um, yeah, so she's try. badass. She kicks ass. And she's Turkish, so you know she like, knows how to hide razor blades places. Um, that's their thing. <laughs> so the slide rule, uh, I mean, listeners, please chime in. My sense is that um, there are like linear regressive ways to do um, a lot of the fun. I mean, this is actually the algorithms that calculators do, too. You know, it's, it's hard to teach a calculator to do things like the natural logarithm or like a sine function a priori, but uh, using uh, various infinite series, you can approximate all of these functions uh, down to a level of accuracy that's, that's far smaller than what the user would practically ever need to use. Uh, and so since like those functions, you know, like a series, like, like a, you know, just a very elaborate um, a polynomial are actually very easy to calculate into, um, you know, a, a, a calculator, you can, you can use that to approximate tangent and sine and natural logs and inverse functions, things like that. And so the slide rule, it's basically, it takes the automated process by which, you know, electrons uh, fill out ones and zeros in a solid state transistor, transistor and gives that power to you to just <laughs> rotate this wheel and have you run these algorithms at a remarkably slower pace. A slide, um, I mean, <laughs> and it turns you from the slide rule into the slide ruler. That's right. That's absolutely right. It's the Magna Carta of, uh, of rulers. Doing you know, long earlier when we said that earlier oh, when geez. we said that we, earlier when we said that we the best uh, conversation on the internet about cars two was occurring when we're talking about price theory. That was wrong. This this is the best conversation <laughs> on the internet about cars two right now. <laughs> but, but just to say a conversation not about cars two. Pete, uh, what were you going to say before? Oh, I was just going to say that it's hard to do long division with irrational numbers. Um, and that's kind of the, the issue, right, is that you have a lot of these operations like taking tangents and doing logarithms involve like unending, non-repeating decimals. And so it's kind of – you can't really expect, you expect to do all that stuff longhand, right? So the slide rule is a really important uh, tool for, for helping you do that. I mean that, that's my – that was why I always thought people used slide rules. Oh, and yeah. yeah you, you, can, you, can calculate, you can calculate pretty much any function using a slide rule. I mean you can, you can use it to take logarithms of things which you know, only under special cases – 
form uh, a rational number or a whole number. Um, oh, wow. So you're, you're almost always, you know, take uh, the log of almost any number you'd pick and you'd get, actually, that's not true, but anyway. Um, sorry, I was going to get into transfinite math for a moment, which is a topic even more arcane than economic theory. Uh, yeah, if you know what you're doing with the slide rule, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a powerful weapon for a more civilized time. <laughs> sorry, it's an elegant weapon for, ah, oh, yeah. damn it. Elegant weapon for a more civilized age. So, yeah, hey, yeah, we, did, we did some listener feedback. What do you think of that? <laughs> is that it? Is there any more listener feedback, or is that yeah, what we're doing? Yeah, there is, but I'm not going to do it. <laughs> this was our gateway drug. Do you want? Do you want? Do you want to do another listener listener letter? There was a there was another one that I thought uh, was good, and by good I mean uh, convenient to hand, so I can uh, I can do it. Um, oh, I don't know about this because this could get self-aggrandizing pretty quickly. Uh, so let's do it, right? Okay. <laughs> uh, sure. This is we'll be Matt. awesome at it. Uh, this is Yay! Matt. Matt from Melbourne, Australia, uh, writes in to say, Hi, guys. Um, I quite enjoy listening to your discussions on the OTI podcast. You have a certain way of approaching topics that I find fascinating. In contrast to the art studies I think a lot of you have done, I am an engineer. I tend to approach most topics from a rationalist perspective. What up? That is, it simply has to make sense. I chose engineering. And with a slide rule, presumably. <laughs> <laughs> Most Hells yeah. slide rule with, in, a, in a dark alley. Uh, dark Matt alley. continues. Uh, Matt from Australia continues. I chose engineering because I thought robots were cool, not because I have a particular fancy for pumps or wearing brown pants or anything. Pumps is... Does he mean like fluid, uh, fluid pumps? Or does he mean yeah, like a shoe? Is that, a, is that, that an Australian that, term for, for something? Because yeah, for that, us, that uh, means an elevator, right? Because <laughs> yeah, right. uh, Matt from Melbourne, uh, for us, pumps means a lady's shoe. Um, Which I think are only worn in science in Hollywood films by Natalie Portman. Right. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, or Christmas Jones, uh, who only comes once right. a year. So the... the um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's, that's one of those things like uh, braces and suspenders, I guess. Unfortunately, Matt continues from Melbourne, <laughs> Australia. It seems that engineering is one of those disciplines that, in striving for precision, tends to make things a little too pragmatic. And sometimes uh, having much detailed and logical explanation of things tends to suck the fun out of them. For example, I find a lot of comedians difficult to laugh along with uh, because I might know a bit about what they're saying. And it's very hard not to say, well, actually... Right. My question is this. Is there a certain type of person that makes a great overthinker? Do you guys tend to approach topics from the philosophical or sociological angle just because that's what you're familiar with? Or are the philosophical or abstractural disciplines, that's a great new word, actually. I love that. The philosophical or abstractual disciplines, uh, better suited to say breaking (laughs) apart a pop song uh, because because it's not real anyway. Cheers, Matt. From Melbourne, Australia. Uh, thanks very much, yeah. Matt. Um, Matt, first of all, I got to say that there's nothing more real than a Justin Bieber song that says, "When I was 13, I had my first love." Okay, if that ain't real, I don't know what real is. So whatever sort of like hyper real universe you're living yeah. in, I don't want any part of that. If that if that ain't real, then I want to be fake. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So um, I, I, I listened to a song um, once when I was a teenager that I thought was brilliant. It was called, uh, This Song Is Not About a Hat. And the lyrics went like this. This song uh, is not about a hat. This song is not about a hat. This song's about something else. So fancy that. This song is not about a hat. Uh, 
And so um, it uh, it went on uh, and said that uh, you know anything uh, the the kind of progression of the song was. But wait, anything can be put on your head, you know, any physical object. So anything could be a hat. And in fact, anything could be metaphorically compared to a hat. So so any abstract idea could be compared to a hat. So this song is about nothing. Um, and uh, there was a line in the um, in the middle of the song. Um, there's a line in the middle of the song. Uh, we cannot ex- deny the existence of metaphors, even the bad ones. You know, uh, and I think that that is that is a prerequisite for overthinking. We cannot deny the existence of metaphors, bad ones and good ones altogether. Hmm. Anyway, um, what, what I mean, I, I guess. I would add that it's it's sort of key to um, over analyzing something to be uh, to be able to um, look past or disregard. And then I say this just because it's it's sort of a synthetic judgment that's based on what over analyzing is. So in order to in order to analyze something, there has to be like an appropriate level of analysis for that thing, right? It's part of the definition of what it means to over analyze something. So if somebody has said that a certain thing has an appropriate level of analysis for it, and you um, want to over analyze it, if you are uh, a rational or logical empiricist, um, then the person uh, has to be wrong. Like, you, if you're a logical empiricist, you can't overanalyze anything. It just logically doesn't make sense because you're not allowed to assert things that you know you don't have the sort of uh, heuristic capability of asserting from an empirical standpoint, right? Like, you can't say that something has an appropriate level of analysis if you don't have good reason to believe that it has an appropriate level of analysis. So I can analyze it more or less, but if somebody has asserted that there's a given appropriate level of analysis, like, I, and it's they're right, then what I'm doing is inappropriate, and we don't believe that what we're doing is inappropriate. So therefore, like, you can't really be strictly an empiricist and be an overthinker because you can't, you can't both, you can't both be right. And if you prove yourself right, then you stop doing what you're doing and you cease to be who you are. Like, if you say, like, no, analyze it as much as I am, if you're correct in that, you're not overthinking anymore. You're just thinking, right? So in order to overthink, you have to be sort of self-conscious a little bit of the fact that, that, that statements and assertions that people make um, either have different contexts, they don't always mean the same thing, uh, they're, they're, you should be pretty skeptical of, of what people say about stuff, and you should be willing to make assertions uh, without necessarily having the full empirical grounding necessary to know that they are true. Um, and that's, that's what I would say. There's sort of like a, a synthetic and a practical guide to being an overthinker, uh, like, a, like a, a judgment, a logical so association. Mean, uh, and I mean, Pete, you don't mean lying. You don't mean saying things you think that are false. You mean making assertions without having maybe what in law is called standing, right, to make the, to make the assertion. That is to say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, you don't have the, the uh, full-on philosophical justification to make this assertion, but this, this assertion is still something that you believe is true and believe that you can demonstrate, uh, you know, by means of, of example or argumentation. Yeah, well, it's sort I, of like Einstein. Go, go ahead, Dave. I, I was going to say that, like you know, it, the 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 fact is, like you could basically establish any level of critique and define it axiomatically as being that which is appropriate for the thing you're critiquing, um, and, and then you know within that that axiom, then establish a whole field of what's appropriate and inappropriate. And my sense mm-hmm. is, like given what you've just said, that's why our tagline has the word probably in it. Right, like we cannot, in the in the abstract, say subjecting the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it does not deserve, because given you know the different axiomatic level of um, of deservedness, you know you could that could be true or not, right? Well, is that right. what, Pete, what Pete's analysis does though? Is it it reveals uh, overthinking and our claim to be overthinking and overthinkers? 
uh, as a rhetorical strategy, right? That is to say, yeah. we call ourselves overthinkers in order to signal to you, the reader or listener, uh, that you're in for a certain kind of experience, you know, and that, um, and that it, it actually is not a statement about you know, a, a veridical truth. It's a statement about um, our relationship to one another, uh, to our audience, and to the material that we're discussing. But, you know, like that mindset that Pete described is, is you know, nearly identical, uh, if not fully identical, to the mindset that, you know, most of the good scientists I know use to approach science. You know, it, it's, it's careful, uh, creative, and thoughtful scrutiny of things that you've been told and extrapolation of, you know, what that would then mean if those are true or if they're not true. I actually want to and ask you, given- this, Dave, is, is there the concept, I mean, I know that in science there's the concept of, of precision uh, in, yeah. in a value or in a measurement and the concept of, like, uncertainty in a measurement, uh, whereby the, the tools that you use to take a measurement may not be capable of producing... Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, and and those yeah. those two terms are are often used interchangeably because there's there's precision, and then there's also uh, there's accuracy, right? And those are those are different mm-hmm. things, right? But is there, um, is there the idea? Other- so that's the, I mean, there's the idea of like you can do you can do this calculation out to three hundred decimal places, but that is actually an inappropriate level of scrutiny, given that the precision right. in the original measurement was only to four significant digits or something. Yeah, that's right, and, and this is why. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, sorry. You guys keep stomping on each other, Pete. You jump. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I was just oh. going to say, but like the difference is that if you make a calculation out to more significant digits than you're entitled to do so, the state you're you, the thing that you're doing is meaningless, right? And like you have to sort of acknowledge that the thing that you're doing is meaningless, right? Like yeah. like make yeah, you're making calculations within a realm of uncertainty. It's like when somebody gives you a margin for error in a poll, it's not like something has a tendency to be in the place that it is rather than anywhere in that margin for error. People make the mistake all the time. It's like someone one candidate has fifty one percent, one candidate has fifty percent, there's a two percent margin of error. You're like, oh okay, that candidate's probably ahead. No, you don't know because that's what a margin for error is. Know. It means you don't know. So I'm sorry, I, I'm I'll retreat like the- again. Yeah, no, I'd say like the analogy to to you know what overthinking in the context of this website is and science is is less a physicist, you know, trying to get um, you know the fifteenth significant digit on the cosmological constant, and more the physicist who asks, um, does the value of the cosmological constant depend on the color of the pants I'm wearing when I calculate it? Mm-hmm. Right. So it's not it's not that um, you're trying to take an existing level of accuracy and push it forward. It's that you're trying to see connections to things that other people may have dismissed as meaningless uh, and then evaluate them you know, scrutinously. It's not like this guy's a crackpot saying, well, of course, my blue pants are this way. Um, but uh, it's more that he's going to apply like a rigorous level of true scientific scrutiny to something that probably doesn't deserve it. Mm-hmm. So. That's my take on it. But it's, I mean, the, the question was about, the question was about sort of being, uh, was about being literal. And I think that like, I, you know, I think that in order to enjoy artistic production, you have to, uh, you, you can't deny the existence of metaphors, even the bad ones. That is to say, you have, you have to, um, you, you have to, uh, accept that there's kind of another layer of meaning beyond the, um, the layer that you perceive and that things map onto that things map onto that other layer of meaning by means of, you know, trope and reference, um, you know what I mean? Rather than, rather than, and, and that actually the relationship between the two layers of meaning is important rather than, um, uh, and how, and, and how, what the lines look like that go from, from kind of literal to figurative. 
uh, and that you can't you you neither can you say um, the the sort of literal layer of a work of art is all there is, and, and nor can you say uh, the metaphorical layer of a work of art is all there is. That is to say, there's there's some kind of abstract meaning out there, and uh, the work of art is just a means for kind of accessing that. Um, it's just kind of a pointer to that abstract meaning. You, you you sort of have to accept that there are these that kind of meaning can be generated on a number of levels and that the relationship uh, between the levels is something that is um, itself significant. Agreed. That is to say, we hope that you've been doing that this whole time for this overthinking of podcast. Yeah. <laughs> that is to say, can you find some meaning in this podcast? If so, then you can do better than any of the podcasters. <laughs> <laughs> can you please uh, can you please write us and tell us what it is? You can reach us uh, if you want to be ignored. Um, you can email podcast at overthinkingit.com or call 203-285-6401. A far better strategy would be to find the show notes for this episode and leave a comment there. Um, in the meantime, I haven't asked for this for a while, but I really would like you to go on to, and to, because you do what I like, I know you will, uh, go on to iTunes, <laughs> find the iTunes listing for this show, and rate us. Uh, I mean, if you like us, rate us. If you don't like us, do us at least the courtesy of ignoring us. But, um, uh, you know, rate us. Give us a good rating. It will surface us in the, uh, the iTunes uh, listings. And when you write in with a better tagline uh, for the show, a little bit, if you write in with, you know, 300 words of better marketing copy for us i'm sure that the people who see us because you have uh your ratings have surfaced us in the itunes listing will click subscribe uh on the show um so rate us on itunes uh and until then visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com the site where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably, it probably, probably doesn't deserve deserve can we talk about magic cards again? If you're really nice, next week I'll explain to you what a batter skull is and why it matters. <laughs>